0: I'm Lister Sinclair and this is Ideas. Tonight, we reach back into the Ideas archive to present a program first broadcast in 1990.
1: If I look over the 77 years that I've lived in this ghastly century, I don't see anything politically or economically that has not been part of a dissolving phantasmagoria. I see only one thing that has improved in that time, and that's science. I see only one thing that remains stable during that time, and that's the arts. He's
2: a piano teacher. He teaches you how to play things. He's got the quality that Glenn Gould has of taking a work of art and playing it over for you so that you get something new out of it.
1: I think I am a critic who thinks as poets think in terms of metaphors. I think that's what, if you like, makes me distinctive as a critic. I don't say that there aren't other critics who think metaphorically, but I do, and I think that Whatever success I have as a critic, I have because I can speak the language, of metaphor, with less of an accent.
2: To me, Fry has the capacity to be as influential as a Freud or a Darwin or someone like that. Somebody who really initiates a, what Thomas Kuhn called a paradigm shift, a whole shift in the way we look at things. And... I think the only reason he hasn't been as influential as someone like Freud is that people don't are not used to giving literary studies that type of authority to
0: tell us what's real. For more than 40 years Northrop Frye has been telling Canada and the world what is real as a teacher at the University of Toronto and as a writer of literary criticism. His first book was published in 1947. It's called Fearful Symmetry and it transformed the study of the Romantic poet William Blake. Ten years later, his second book, Anatomy of Criticism, transformed the study of literature itself and became the most influential critical work of its time. And his book on the Bible, The Great Code, which was published in 1982, became a Canadian bestseller. Success brought celebrity. Northrop Fry has 36 honorary degrees, To get to his office, he must pass the portals of Northrop Frye Hall. A visit to the library involves an appearance under a portrait twice as big as he is. He also has a formidable international reputation. In Italy, a few years ago, the University of Rome devoted an entire conference to his work. Interviews with Frye made the front pages of Italian newspapers, and that was in the middle of an election campaign. Yet despite the fame and adulation, Northrop Frye has remained throughout his career a devoted teacher of undergraduates at the University of Toronto's Victoria College. Tonight on Ideas, we begin a three-part intellectual biography of Northrop Frye. Tonight, we focus on Northrop Frye as literary critic. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. Northrop Fry made his
3: name as a literary critic, and he has insisted, even when writing about the Bible, that that is what he remains. But the job description might be a little misleading if you think of a literary critic as someone who can tell you what a difficult poem means or how John Milton got on with his wives. Fry has turned out an immense body of practical criticism, writing on everyone from Dante to Emily Dickinson. But he has also done much more. He has raised those apparently naive, childlike questions which lesser minds avoid. What is language? What good is the study of literature? And he has tried to answer in a clear, vigorous style which sets him apart from many contemporary literary theorists. What is worth understanding, he has always insisted, can potentially be understood by everyone. His method is just as enlightening as his manner. He teaches his readers and students new habits of thought, new ways of seeing the world. If the doors of perception were cleansed, he says, along with poet William Blake, everything would appear as it is, infinite. Never divisive, never reductive, never mesmerized by either-or dialectics, he has tried to see each question as a whole. He is finally a teacher of wisdom, and Canadians have responded to him that way, recognizing him not just as a writer and scholar, but as a guide. Northrop Frye was born in Sherbrooke, Quebec in July of 1912. His mother's father was a Methodist preacher. His father came from a farming family. Three years after Frye's birth in 1915, his father opened a hardware store. He had previously been a clerk, but the business was ill-fated and eventually failed in 1919. The year before, Frye's older brother had been killed in the war and the two events
1: together cast a long shadow over his parents' lives. When my father's business failed up, we moved to Lenoxville, about three miles away, and I stayed there until I was about seven or eight. And then my father began to become a hardware salesman for the Maritimes and settled in Moncton because it was central for his traveling. So I moved to Moncton when I was about eight. And did you feel that as an exile when you went or well my parents did Did, i suppose i caught it from them i was too young to feel it as an exile but uh, they lost all their friends and uh, never felt accepted in the maritimes even to the very end well of course other things happened my father was always of a very retiring disposition socially He was affable enough with with people, but he wasn't a a socializer. And my mother got extremely deaf and withdrawn and introverted. I was uh, really brought up by grandparents, uh, in effect.
3: Fry grew up in Moncton. He played the piano, which he still does today, quite skillfully, and he read voraciously from a young age. His biographer, John Eyre, paints a picture of him at age four, clutching a copy of Pilgrim's Progress to his breast, like a teddy bear. By the time he entered school, Fry was already widely enough read that he found it, as he said later, a form of penal servitude. I saw children lined up and marched into a grimy brick building, he wrote. A rabble of screaming and strapping spinsters was turned loose on them, and the educational process began. Estranged from school and Monkton society, his parents somewhat remote. Fry was forced to rely mainly on himself.
1: I was brought up not only as psychologically a grandchild, but also as an only child, because I had only one sister, and she was 12 years older. So I was very much thrown in on myself, and being temperamentally extremely bookish and rather awkward physically, it made it even more so. There was also the fact that our family was... Uh, in a state of sort of shabby-genteel poverty the whole time, and that I s- simply could not afford the freedom of social movement that other boys had. And uh, when there's no world to live in except the world of the imagination, naturally that's going to take shape. In short, I suppose I spent the first 17 years of my life
3: mooning. In high school, Fry pored over the works of Bernard Shaw. His seemingly eccentric intellectual interests, and his tendency to sound off, won him the nickname of the Professor. He graduated first in his class in English and won, as a reward, a scholarship to the Success Business College for stenographic training. According to his biographer, John Eyre, whose account I'm relying on here, Fry quickly proved a prodigy, so good, in fact, that the college sent him to a national typing contest in Toronto in April of 1929. His second-place finish in the novice class made the papers back home and persuaded the college to send him back to Toronto that fall for an international typing competition. Both Fry and his mother had already decided that he should leave the Maritimes for his university education. The free trip to Toronto gave him the opportunity he needed. He enrolled at Victoria, the University of Toronto's Methodist College. There he encountered the writers who would later shape his thinking and his work. The most important of these was the English poet, painter, and prophet, William Blake. I think it advisable, Fry wrote years later, for every critic proposing to devote his life to literary scholarship, to pick a major writer of literature as a kind of spiritual preceptor for himself. Fry's preceptor was William Blake, and he is telling the figurative, if not quite the
1: literal truth, when he says that he learned everything he knows from him. I think I've told the story that I was assigned a paper on Blake's Milton, one of his most complex and difficult poems, and started working on it the night before I was to read it. And it was around about three in the morning when suddenly the universe just broke open. And I've never been, as I say, the same man since. What was it? Just a feeling of an enormous number of things making sense that had been scattered and unrelated before. A vision of coherence. That's the only way I can describe it. Things began to form patterns and make sense. In other words, it was a mythological frame taking hold. I've had two or three nights where I've, uh, I've had uh, sudden visions of that kind. There were, I suppose, ultimately visions of what I myself might be able to do.
3: The mythological framework which took hold was essentially the Bible. Blake showed Fry the Bible as a cosmos, a comprehensive body of images within which a society lives, and he showed him that societies live within such a mythological framework or body of stories even when they think they don't. The existence of this mythological universe became the central postulate of Fry's critical theory and the Bible moved to the center of his studies, where it has remained ever since.
1: The Bible to Blake was really the Magna Carta of the human imagination. It was the book that told man that he was free to create and imagine, and that the power to create and imagine was ultimately the divine in man. That uh, Christianity, and of course it's the Christian Bible Blake is talking about, was preeminently the religion which uh, uh, united the divine and the human and consequently opened a path of freedom to man, which was infinite.
3: Blake became Fry's touchstone and a source of sanity in a world that was descending into fascism and war. Read Blake or go to hell, he wrote. That's my message to the modern world. But Blake was not the only writer Fry was reading. He was also looking into contemporary literature, and noticing a reactionary turn amongst writers he had admired, like T.S. Eliot. Eliot was then the dominant voice in English poetry and criticism, and though he did not openly admire fascism, as did Ezra Pound, Wyndham Lewis, and William Butler Yeats, he was an anti-Semite, and he had already made his famous pronouncement that he was classical in literature, royalist in politics, and Anglo-Catholic in religion. Fry, romantic socialist
1: and methodist took careful note i found not fascism in eliot eliot didn't go that far but he was certainly in my terms a reactionary uh, in books like after strange gods which i read when i was quite young and when it first came out and felt it was a betrayal it, in a way it was my sort of becoming become aware of my own responsibilities as a critic i mean one of my guiding principles has been that a, a poet can be any kind of damn fool and still be a poet. That because you couldn't couldn't trust the poets, you had to <laughs> you had to do it yourself if you were going to be a critic.
3: Fry had other occasions to distinguish between writers and their visions as well. He read Sir James Fraser's The Golden Bough, a book which influenced him deeply. He found the scholarship shoddy and the author rather stupid. But the book showed him again what Blake had shown him that myth is the universal language of the imagination. And he also fell in love with the writing of the German historian Oswald Spengler, a man easily as hard
1: to like as T.S. Eliot. At Harthouse Library, when I was an undergraduate, I picked up Spengler's Decline of the West and was absolutely enraptured with it. And ever since then, I've been wondering why, because uh, Spengler had one of these muzzy, right-wing, Teutonic, folkish minds. He was the most stupid bastard I ever picked up. But nevertheless, I found his book an inspired book. And uh, finally, I've more or less figured out, I think, what I got from Spengler. There's a remark on Malrose, Voices of Silence, to the effect that Spengler's book started out as a meditation on the destiny of art forms and then expanded from there. And what it expanded into was the key idea, which has always been in my mind, the idea of interpenetration, which uh, I later found in Whitehead's Science in the Modern World, the notion that things don't get reconciled, they, but everything is everywhere at once. Wherever you are as the center of everything. And uh, Spengler showed how that operated in history. So I, I threw out the muzzy Teuton and, and kept those two intuitions, which I, I felt were going to be very central. Spengler's decline of the West
3: is a vision of the organic unity of culture. Like Milton, who says that a commonwealth ought to be but as one huge Christian personage, like Blake, who says that multitudes of nations seen from afar appear as one man, Spengler conceives of culture as a single form present in all its manifestations. Fry was on his way to the idea that would eventually coordinate his anatomy of criticism, that literature must be conceived as a whole. In
0: 1933,
3: Fry graduated from Victoria College with honors in English and philosophy. He decided to continue his studies, first at Emmanuel College, Victoria's Theological School. In 1936, he was ordained as a United Church minister. Following this, he went to Merton College, Oxford for further studies in English. He
1: returned to Victoria as a teacher on the eve of war. I came back in the fall of 1939, the uh, train got into Toronto on the day that the Soviet-Nazi Pact was signed. And the next day, one of my colleagues who taught the 18th century course signed up. So I had that course to do as well as the three that I'd been assigned. And uh, preparing for lectures really took all the energy I had. The classroom became his laboratory
3: encounter with students a constant challenge to him to refine and clarify his ideas. And having to teach them made him plunge more deeply into the authors like Shakespeare, Spencer, Dante, and Milton, who crop up everywhere in his later writings. Preparing lectures, and mastering the texts he was teaching, at first left Fry little time for the book he planned to write on William Blake. But by the early forties, he was back at work on his already well-worked manuscript. Fry saw Blake as an artist who had renovated the entire mythical structure of the Western worldview. Blake proposed a new way of looking at the universe and humanity's place in it, as well as that of God. He dethroned the God he called Old Nobodaddy, the old bugger up in the sky with the whiskers and the reactionary political views, as Fry once said, and substituted the human form divine, a God within revealed by the imagination other than a God out there. Blake took the world picture that Western civilization had derived from the Bible and, in effect, turned it upside down, making imaginative sense of what had become literal nonsense. This is Fry's account of the traditional view on which Blake worked.
1: There's first of all the presence of God, which is always associated with metaphors of up there, even though they're known to be nothing but metaphors. Then. There is the state which God intended man to live in, that is, the Garden of Eden, the Golden Age, the Paradise. And then there is third, the fallen world that man fell into with the sin of Adam and Eve. And then there is fourth, the demonic world below the order of nature. So on that scheme, there are two levels to the order of nature the one that God designed, and the one that we're living in now. And the destiny of man is to climb out of the fallen world as nearly as he can to the state that was originally designed for him. He does this under a structure of authority, uh, the sacraments of religion, the practice of morality and, and education and so forth. And what role does poetry play when such an order is intact? Poetry begins with two strikes on it, because God made the world and he made it better than the poets can make poems. Sir Thomas Brown says that nature is the art of God, and of course that means that man just sweeps up the, the shavings, so to speak. The poets didn't take that as seriously as the theologians did, fortunately. But uh, a- after about 1750, it began to be clearer and clearer, that these four levels were the façade of a structure of authority. And uh, with the Romantic movement, you get this whole cosmology turned upside down. Why at that date did it begin to become clear? Because of the, first the American Revolution, then the French Revolution, then the Industrial Revolution.
4: What about the Scientific Revolution? A scientific what role revolution,
1: did that yes. Uh, that, of course, knocked out all the up-there metaphors. After Newton's time, you couldn't uh, regard the stars as a world of quintessence, as all that was left of the unfallen world. That's why Blake gives Isaac Newton the job of blowing the last trumpet in his poetry. In the traditional structure, the movement is from God to man. What is the movement within Blake's... Within, uh, for Blake, it's uh, the fact that you have to think of God as at the bottom of creation, trying to rebuild it, and as working through man to that effect.
3: The four levels are still there, I think.
1: They're still there, but they're upside down. The world up there is the world of science fiction, of outer space. It's It's a symbol of alienation. There's nothing there except infinite resources for killing you. And... Then below that comes this very unfair world of ordinary experience where the predators are the aristocrats. And then below that is the world of frustrated sexual and social desire. The world of Marx's proletariat and of uh, Freud's repressed consciousness. And then below that again is the creative power of God, which works only through man as a conscious being.
3: Salvation, for Blake, comes from below and within. The divine is the creative power within us, and God is our power to perceive the infinite, rather than an objective something which we perceive in the world. For Fry, Blake was the first to express this characteristic modern idea of salvation from below rather than above. Fry finds this idea, for example, in Blake's best-known work, The Songs of Innocence
1: and Experience. For Blake, what happens is that the child, who is the central figure of the Songs of Innocence, is born believing that the world was made for his benefit, that the world makes human sense. He then grows up and discovers that the world isn't like this at all. So what happens to his childlike vision Blake says, it gets driven underground to what we would now call the subconscious. And there you have the embryonic, mythical shape that is worked on later by people like Schopenhauer and Marx and Freud.
3: This shape appears in Freud as the relationship between ego and id, in Marx as ruling class and proletariat, in Schopenhauer as idea and will. What is below may be sinister, Or the source of salvation. The shape remains constant, and this illustrates Fry's idea that mythical structure is always prior to content. Thought always fleshes out a skeleton of myth. To Fry, it was Blake who gave this modern myth its most humane expression. Blake's approach, he felt, was pregnant with unexplored possibilities in both religion and the arts, and so he worked away at his book on Blake. I've spun the man around like a teetotem, he wrote. I've torn him into tiny shreds and teased and anatomized him with pincers. There isn't a sentence in the whole work that hasn't gone through purgatory. After five complete rewritings, Fearful Symmetry was finally published by Princeton University Press in 1947. The book had a revolutionary effect on many of its readers. Harold Bloom of Yale University one of the most widely read critics of the generation after Fry's, told an interviewer a couple of years ago that it had ravished his heart away. I must have read it a hundred times between 1947 and 1950, he went on, probably intuitively memorized it and will never escape the effect of it. Michael Dolzani, today Fry's part-time research assistant and a teacher at Baldwin Wallace College in Ohio, had a similar reaction when he read it.
2: I was given a copy of Fearful Symmetry when I was a freshman in college, and that was what you might call my conversion experience, because I was just totally blown away by it. I I had an intellectual experience like nothing I'd ever had before. It just opened worlds to me, and kept me from dropping out of school and becoming a hippie, like all my friends were doing at the time, and sort of uh, determined my direction uh, ever afterwards right up to the present time. We don't usually grant literary studies this kind of authority really to tell us what reality is. We usually look to science or to the social sciences, but Fry showed me it could be found in literature. Literature could really expand your vision. The title of one of Fry's essays uh, that I like the most is Expanding Eyes, and that's a phrase from Blake that talks about what what the imagination and the arts can really do for people words with power his forthcoming second volume about the bible the title is very similar to that it refers to a, an untapped potential of consciousness expanding power that literature has or could have for us that we we rarely draw upon
3: In 1957, ten years after Fearful Symmetry, Fry published his second book, Anatomy of Criticism. In it, he laid out the ideas that would occupy him for the rest of his life. At the center of the work is what Fry called the assumption of total coherence, the idea that literature can and should be considered as a whole and not just as an ever-expanding pile of individual works. Literature is a structure, Fry argued, and because it's a structure, it should be possible to investigate it scientifically and learn its laws. He wanted to derive the laws of literature from literature itself, to make criticism part of literature and not just a parasitic poor cousin
1: of philosophy or history. But first, he had to clear the ground. The world of criticism was inhabited by a lot of people who were pretty confused about what they were doing and didn't particularly in mind that they were confused about it. I was impatient with all these semi-literate productions which I'd been compelled to read in the way of secondary sources. I was tired of a historical approach to literature that didn't know any literary history, that uh, simply dealt with ordinary history plus a few dates of writers. It was just a matter of just being fed up with with a field that, seemed to me to have no discipline in it. The anatomy is a, is a claim for the autonomy of literary criticism.
3: In what ways did literary criticism lack autonomy at the time that you began
1: writing? Well, uh, by autonomy, I mean uh, having a discipline. If you study history, you're a historian, and history has uh, a discipline. There are certain rules for writing correct history. and. Uh, ways of writing sloppy history which eventually get recognized as such. The same thing is true of philosophy. Criticism, it seemed to me, had no discipline of that kind. It, it had no uh, uh, sense of its own integrity. I think autonomy was a rather misleading word in some respects because uh, it suggested to a lot of people who wanted to have this suggested that uh, criticism, as I conceived it, was a retreat from the world. In fact, the original Italian translator of the anatomy used the word for, or outside, you see, which uh, is a complete misapprehension. The translation has been revised since then, but uh, I didn't think of criticism as, in any respects, of withdrawing from uh, life or thinking of literature as, as something that withdrew from life. but. Uh, I thought that criticism was a study in its own right and not simply a parasitic approach to literature. What was criticism subservient to at the time you wrote? Well, one of the things I was attacking were the, the reductive or uh, deterministic criticisms, such as the Marxist type and the Freudian type. And at that time, it's pretty well blown up now, but at that time the Thomist or Roman Catholic type,
3: Fry wanted critics to go to literature for their critical principles, just as he had gone to Blake, and not to sociology, psychology, or theology. The anatomy he saw as a preliminary attempt to do this. The book is comprised of four essays, each an approach to the question of literature's overall shape. There's a theory of modes, which traces the descent of literature from myth, a theory of symbols, which shows how works of art gather meaning for their readers, a theory of myths, which describes the basic shapes of stories, and a theory of genres, which distinguishes literary forms from each other. Each displays Fry's special diagrammatic and visualizing imagination, as well as his characteristic wit and encyclopedic knowledge. Often the questions Fry invites us to ask are quite simple ones. Are we looking up or down at the characters of a story? Is their power of action greater or less than our own? Does the action rise or fall? Bert Hamilton is a professor of English at Queen's University and the author of a new book called Northrop
4: Fry, Anatomy of His Criticism. He's interested in structure. I mean, Fry is a structuralist critic, a proto-structuralist critic. He's interested in, in standing back from a literary work. I mean, you've read it, You stand back from at the end. Now, what kind of shape does it have? In a work that we call a comedy, whether it's a play or a novel, you see um, obstructing figures at the beginning of the action, and then at the end, uh, the hero and heroine uh, celebrate um, their union and a new society uh, symbolized by their marriage. Now, in in a tragedy, you'll have the opposite kind of action. Things may begin well, but they end unhappily. And uh, Fry then extends this to romance, where he sees these two kinds of structural patterns included in the one work. You'll have, first of all, a descent, but then finally an ascent. In fact, romance goes beyond comedy because more than just a social resolution, more than just a new society, the hero and heroine are transported, translated to a higher than a social context. Ironian satire is simply the reverse, where there's a descent and no rise at all.
3: That, in a nutshell, is the theory of myths. But Fry is more than just a mapmaker. He's interested in works of art as ethical instruments, capable of carrying us to the highest reaches of what he calls anagogic meaning, the level at which meanings interpenetrate and the world becomes fully human.
4: Everyone is aware in reading a work of literature, um, and this is true of, of you know, a scholar who will spend a lifetime uh, reading a work, or any general reader, anyone listening to to this broadcast, will realize that uh, that a literary work uh, has more than just one meaning; that it gathers meanings, it accumulates meanings that say you'll see more and more in a work. Now. My mother, God bless her, uh, read very early Anne of Green Gables. Now that's a work she's turned back to again and again, I guess 60 years. And um, it it grows an understanding to her. I mean, the central story of that work in which somebody finds identity, I mean, this is meaningful to her. And so Fry calls this a level of anagogy where you can have a more comprehensive view on, on literature and life through one literary work. And this kind of work then you'll live with. Uh, the, the term is possession. That's a f- term Fry use. You, you, you are first possessed by literary work, overwhelmed by it, say, but then later on you possess it, you, you absorb it, you take part of its energy in yourself, and, and it becomes a way of, of looking upon anything in life.
3: The idea that the arts embody a creative power, which can be possessed by their audience, is central to Northrop Frye's entire work. At the time The Anatomy was published, it distinguished him very clearly from his critical predecessors. Documentary or historical critics had investigated the contexts of literary work. The new critics had tried to make literature stand alone. But neither, says Bert Hamilton, had finally believed that
4: literature ultimately matters. When he was writing uh, his first books, Uh, A a, a literary work was an object of scholarship. Uh, A critic would take Milton's Paradise Lost and study Puritanism, and whether he responded to the work, whether he appreciated the work, uh, hardly mattered. Uh, uh, To the critic it was a work of scholarship in which he was engaged in trying to understand, say, Milton's Puritanism or whatever. Then the new critics came along and looked at the work in terms of a pattern of imagery, but again, whether that work really mattered to them in relation to their values, uh, was something that uh, the new critic just did not bother with. Then Fry came along and wanted a response to literature to be more than just an object, or say, an aesthetic object. So you read a literary work, and you appreciate it, and you drop it, and you pick up something else, and you like this, and you drop it, where your reading is quite promiscuous, quite, quite occasional. It has no meaning uh, whatever, really. Uh, And Fry wanted uh, literature to assume a more important place for readers. It wanted that to be recognized. And um, he picked up from Blake a notion that when a writer produces a poem or a novel, that writer is not just giving you something to be appreciated as an aesthetic object, but is really interested in engaging you as a human being deeply. And, and of course the best literature does this. and the metaphor Fry uses he gets from Blake is that uh, it's a transfer of imaginative energy that if you respond deeply to a literary work, respond to it imaginatively, making it central in, in your life, then what you do is capture that creative power that's in the work itself. Within a few years of its
3: publication, Anatomy of Criticism had become the most widely read and the most influential work of criticism to appear in its time. Speaking at a symposium on Fry's work in 1965, fellow critic Murray Krieger claimed that Fry had had an absolute hold on a generation of developing literary critics. But the praise was never unanimous. And misunderstandings have persisted ever since. Occasionally, these misunderstandings made the book seem something of an albatross to Fry, and he once wrote to a friend in jest that he wished he'd never written it. One of the most controversial points was Fry's denunciation of value judgments in criticism.
1: I was getting at the conception of the critic as judge, Uh, sitting on a bench with the uh, defendant in front of him squirming. I felt that that was a preposterous ego trip for the uh, critic to attempt. And that value judgments are things that people argue about and discuss uh, and uh, talk about endlessly, and they do enter into one's critical experience. The thing is that they can never be demonstrated. And what I value judgment manifests is the taste of its time as it's filtered through the individual critic. The value judgments of most of the serious critics for a century after Shakespeare's death was that Ben Jonson was really a much more serious writer. The value judgments of the later 18th century said that Blake was a lunatic. The great boners of criticism, like Reimer's calling Othello a bloody farce and so forth, are not the result of a critic's lack of taste. They're the result of his following, the conventions of his time. Why do you think there was such misunderstanding on this point? There was a great misunderstanding because uh, people uh, were brought up to think that uh, being a literary critic was a gentleman's occupation and the gentleman is a person who attaches immense importance to his taste. I like this. I don't like that.
3: And in
1: rejecting that, where are you trying to go as a critic? In rejecting that, you move from the gentleman to the scholar. The scholar reads everything in his historical period, good, bad, or indifferent. It's all good because it's all documentation for his work. He works entirely Uh, without um, explicit value judgments they may enter into his work at some point or other, but good, bad, or indifferent, everything which comes under a critic's purview or under a scholar's purview has to be read by the scholar. He's trying to understand, Yes. not to judge. And very often you can understand the taste of an age uh, from its least interesting writers. In rejecting criticism as a gentleman's occupation. You're also
3: implicitly trying to democratize criticism.
1: Um, Democratize criticism and Uh also try to remove criticism from the area of morality, because every value judgment is a moral judgment in disguise. And uh, the moral judgment reflects the ideological conditioning of a certain age. The nearest you come to a value judgment i think as in words like classic or masterpiece where you have value terms but what they mean are works of literature that refuse to go away it was all very well to say for a century that ben jonson was uh, a closer follower of nature than uh, shakespeare and therefore a more serious dramatist but uh, Shakespeare just squatted down on the stage and refused to move and survived even the most grotesque uh, manhandlings of his work, whereas only two or three of Johnson's plays have really held the stage.
3: Another source of controversy about the anatomy was Fry's stress on the shaping power of literary conventions or models. Literature is often made out of other literature, Fry insisted, 20 years before deconstructionists began talking of intertextuality. A poem, he said, is something already latent in language, the difference between the original and the imitative poet, only that the original poet is more profoundly imitative. His detractors preferred to believe that literature is made out of life.
1: What I always kept getting were were uh, anxieties of the, but what about life, Professor Fry? Uh, that sort of thing. And uh, I would say, well, literature has swallowed life. Life is inside literature. All you have to do to find out about life is read literature. Oh my, that bothered them. They they were bothered by the suggestion that a writer gets what he uh, acquires technically out of other books instead of by empiric observation. They just had to have it that way. So I used to get all kinds of anxieties about my not attending to the uniqueness of the work of art. And I would keep saying, but uh, uniqueness is not an object of knowledge. We never know the unique. The unique exists in experience only. And it's part of the response to literature, but it's not part of literature.
3: A lot of the anxiety provoked by Fry's critical theory is traceable to his idea that literature is valuable in itself and not merely a mirror reflecting values generated elsewhere. The conservative who wants literature to be edifying and the radical who wants it to reflect his own ideological concerns are, for Fry, different sides of the same coin. Both want to attach literature to something else, and their lineage, Fry says, goes all the way back to Plato.
1: Plato was. Uh, the first of all the people who wanted to take over poetry and hitch it on to an ideology, namely his. And uh, all the poets who wouldn't do that would have to leave the republic. But uh, according to the laws, there are others who stay around writing hymns and panegyrics to the greatness of the platonic idea world. And uh, that's still true of all ideologues. Artists have always been told that they have no real authority, that they live in a world of let's pretend, and they just play around with fictions. And uh, their function is to delight and instruct, as Horace says. And uh, uh, they can learn from their own art how to delight, but they can't learn how to instruct unless they study philosophy or theology or politics. And uh, as a literary critic, I've been fighting that notion all my life.
2: The thing that the anatomy is attacked for the most often is that, well, Fry divorces art from life. Michael Dolzani. He makes literature turn away from life, from the world out there, and and just turn inward upon itself. And it becomes this sort of self-contained literary universe that's really kind of an intellectual's ivory tower where academics can hide out. I think that's wrong, but I think that, amidst all of the confusion, there's a very central issue that explains a lot about the center of Frye's work. One of Norrie's favorite works of criticism, he rarely names works of criticism as things that attract him, but he does often talk about Oscar Wilde's essay, The Decay of Lying. And what Wilde was saying is, he didn't think art told the truth, at least if that's how you define truth, as that sense of photographic reflection. He said that art is always a form of lying in the sense of turning away from the sort of given or external world out there. But it's not just a simple lying either, and this is where Fry comes, Fry's own ideas come into this. What literature and the arts in general do is to create an alternative reality of their own. And that's not just escapist, because Wilde said that instead of art imitating life, which is what we usually think, actually life imitates art. Art remodels life, or to use what I think, if there's a central critical term of of Frye's, It's recreation. Art just doesn't reflect life like a mirror or a photograph. It remodels or recreates it. And this is what Fearful Symmetry showed me. That art can change the way we perceive and therefore can change the way we experience. And it can expand our visions that way. And it can change the world.
3: Anatomy of criticism embodied high hopes. Fry wanted criticism to transcend taste in order to become a body of authoritative knowledge, to transcend ideology in order to become a disinterested voice within literature. And he wanted the arts recognized as the permanent structure of a truly human life, the ruins of time which build mansions in eternity, as Blake says. Whether these hopes have been realized is an open question. Fry's own occasional remarks on the subject, as when he finds criticism 25 years later still mired in ideology, tend to suggest that he thinks not. And yet, the anatomy is still there and still read, the most widely read book in the arts and humanities of the 20th century, according to Fry's bibliographer, Robert Denham. Precisely because of this influence, most of today's best-known critics have had at Fry at one time or another, their criticisms are various, but one very common note is the complaint that Fry, as Frederick Jameson says, ignores the mark of ideology on myth. Fry says that his critics have still not understood that literature embodies a truth beyond ideology.
1: Most of my critics do not know that there is such a thing as a poetic language, which is not only different from ideological language, but puts up a constant fight against it to liberalize and individualize it. There is no such thing as a pure myth. There's no immaculate conception of mythology. Myth exists only in incarnations, but it's the ones that are incarnated in works of literature that I'm primarily interested in, and what they create is a cultural counter-environment to the ones that are, I won't say perverted, but at any rate uh, twisted or skewed into ideological patterns of authority.
3: I think probably People like Jameson are saying that all myths are, in some sense, scary. You say that, that
1: because they are, are, are pan ideologists. They, they can't conceive of any myth that doesn't come in an ideological form, but Shakespeare does. Dante and Milton, perhaps more obviously, reflect the ideologies of their time, but their structure is radically a poetic structure, which is something different.
3: Fry has never really bothered much about his critics. There is an occasional note of weary exasperation in his writings when he deals once again with the question of value judgments or some other endlessly controversial point. But generally, he sees no point in being drawn into discussion or debate with people whose assumptions are remote from his own.
1: I detest arguments because you're, uh, you're going to lose any argument with an ideologue because you can only argue on the basis of a counter ideology, and I'm not doing that. I think that the ideologue addresses his public and wants to make a kinetic effect on it. He wants them to get out there and do something. And uh, the the poet turns his back on his audience. And as I begin the anatomy, I think, with uh, John Stuart Mill's remark that the poet is overheard, not heard. And he doesn't look for a kinetic atta- uh, effect on his audience at all the actual technique of argumentative writing is something I avoid as far as possible because when you argue you are selecting points to emphasize and there can never be anything definitively right or wrong about an emphasis. It's simply a choice among possibilities and consequently an argument is always a half truth. We've known that ever since Hegel and uh, It is a militant way of writing, and I'm not interested in militancy. Uh, Literature, you see, doesn't argue in itself that's uh, the principle of Shelley's defense of poetry, that uh, literature cannot argue, and as Yeats says, you can refute Hegel but not the Song of Sixpence. As As I've often said, the irrefutable philosopher is not the person who cannot be refuted. But the philosopher was still there after he has been refuted. Fry, I think, has this quality himself
3: of still being there after he has been refuted. Newer schools have replaced the romantic, myth centered criticism with which Fry was identified, and philosophy, through Jacques Derrida's concept of deconstruction, has reasserted its hold on criticism. But Fry, in a real sense, stands outside the sequence of fads which constitute the history of literary criticism. Historical criticism, new criticism, myth criticism, structuralism, deconstructionism, and now the new historicism. Fry, always encyclopedic, always swallowing contradictions whole, embodies parts of them all, usually the best parts. He belongs to what Bert Hamilton calls the extended humanist tradition, which stretches all the way back to Aristotle, the tradition of thinkers who have asked fundamental questions and have given us compelling answers.
1: Often described as somebody who is now in the past and whose reputation has collapsed. But I don't think I'm any further down Skid Row than the deconstructionists are.
0: The Ideas of Northrop Fry, Part One. The program was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations by Todd Ferracci and Brian Hill. Production assistance by Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. Producer, Sarah Walsh. Special thanks to Jane Whittacombe. We've prepared a printed transcript of this three-part series. It costs $15 for all three programs or $5 for each individual hour so please specify which hour you want along with your request and make your cheques or money orders payable to Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W 1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.